Section two of fourteen months in American Bastilles by Francis Key Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fortress Monroe. We reached Fortress Monroe about six o'clock on the morning of September fourteenth. Major General John E. Wool was in command of the department within which the fort was situated, and had his headquarters there at the time. As no arrangements had been made for our reception, we did not land until late in the day. The boat lay at the wharf for several hours, and then ran up above the fortress about a quarter of a mile, and anchored in the stream. In the course of the day General Wool sent for Messrs. Brown and May. He stated to them that our arrival had taken him by surprise, and that he had no quarters prepared for us, but said that some of the casements were being made ready for us. He evidently felt that the accommodations he was about to give us were not such as we had a right to expect, and intimated that a building known as Carroll Hall, or a portion of it, would in all probability be assigned to us in a few days. This was the last that any of the party saw of General Wool, and we heard no more of Carroll Hall. About five o'clock we landed, and were marched to our quarters. These consisted of two casements, from which some negroes were still engaged in removing dirt and rubbish when we got there. Each of these casements was divided by a substantial partition, thus making four rooms. The two front rooms were well furnished, and were about fifteen by twenty-three feet each, and each had a door and two windows, which opened on the grounds within the fortress. The windows had Venetian shutters to them, and there were Venetian doors also, outside of the ordinary solid doors. The inner, or back rooms, if rooms they can be called, were considerably smaller than the others, and were simply vaulted chambers of rough stone, whitewashed. They were each lighted by a single deep embrasure, which, at the narrowest part, was about forty-four by twenty-two inches. Just beneath these embrasures was the moat, which at that point was more than fifty feet in width. On the opposite side of the moat a sentinel was constantly stationed. The two back rooms, and one of the front ones, were used as sleeping apartments, each being occupied by five persons. In the other front room we took our meals. Bedsteads and bedding were furnished us, which, I believe, were obtained from the Haigia Hotel just outside the walls. About ten o'clock one of the sergeants of the provost marshal visited us and carefully searched our baggage. Our meals were sent from the hotel also, and worse, as we at that time thought, could not well have been offered us. The regulations to which we were subjected were not only unnecessarily rigorous, but seemed to have been framed with the deliberate purpose of adding petty insults to our other annoyances. We were required to leave the room when the servants who brought our meals were engaged in setting the table, although a sergeant of the guard was always present at such times to prevent our holding any conversation with them. We were notified by an order from General Wool also that the knives and forks were to be counted after each meal. It is difficult to conceive for what rational purpose such a rule was made. Fifteen of us would scarcely have thought of assailing the thousands of troops who composed the garrison with such weapons as might have been snatched from the table. And closely guarded as we were, it was hardly possible that we could have effected our escape, had we thought of doing so, 
by means of such implements as knives and forks. The order was one, therefore, which could only have been intended to humiliate us, and it was certainly such as no one having the instincts of a gentleman, or the better feelings of a man, would have suggested or enforced. It was, however, in accordance with the theory upon which General Wool thought proper to deal with us throughout. In front of our casements a large guard was stationed day and night, two or three tents being pitched about ten feet off for their use, and a sentinel was constantly pacing up and down within four feet of our doors. For a week we never left our two casements for a single instant, for any purpose whatever. We continually remonstrated against the manner in which we were treated, and represented the fact that we were likely, under such circumstances, to suffer seriously in health. Our complaints were generally followed by some new restriction. After we had been there two or three days, the sergeant of the guard closed the window shutters and the Venetian doors of our rooms, and stated that he had express orders to do so. At our request, Mr. Wallace addressed the following note to Captain Davis, the Provost Marshal. Captain Davis, USA, Provost Marshal. Sir, the sergeant who has charge of my fellow prisoners and myself has just closed the blinds of our front windows and doors, excluding from us the sight of passing objects, shutting out, to a great extent, the light by which we read, and hindering the circulation of the air through our apartments. These last are, at best, damp and unwholesome, and to-day, particularly, in the existing state of the atmosphere, are extremely unpleasant and uncomfortable. So much so, that we have been compelled to build a fire for our mere protection from illness. Some of our number are old men, others in delicate health, and the restraint which excludes us from air and exercise is painful enough without this new annoyance, which the sergeant informs us, he has no right to forgo. You are aware of the disgusting necessities to which we are subjected, in a particular of which we spoke to you personally, and you will, of course, know how much this new obstruction must add to our discomfort. I am requested by my companions simply to call your attention to the matter, and am, very respectfully, S. T. Wallace. Fortress Monroe, 17th September, 1861. No reply was made to this by Captain Davis. On the following day iron bars were placed across the shutters, and padlocked, thus fastening them permanently, and the Venetian doors were padlocked also. The keys were kept by the sergeant, who was the deputy, or assistant, of the provost marshal, and in his absence no one had access to our rooms. In consequence of this we were often put to serious inconvenience, and on several occasions our meals, which were trundled up from the hotel in a wheelbarrow, remained for an hour or two outside of the door, awaiting the pleasure of the sergeant. After the closing of the doors and shutters, our situation was, of course, far more irksome than ever. The Venetian doors were not quite so high as the solid doors, and by standing on anything that elevated us a few inches, we could manage to look out over them. Through these furtive and unsatisfactory glimpses only, could we obtain any sight of the outer world, on that side of our prison. From the back rooms we had a limited view of the river, and of some of the shipping, and of this prospect it was impossible by the exercise of any ingenuity to deprive us. A day or two before we left, 
we were allowed, at intervals during the day, the use of an adjoining casement. Sanitary considerations, I presume, compelled our keepers to grant us a privilege, which it was sheer brutality to have so long denied us. A door communicated between our quarters, and this new casement, at which a sentinel was stationed, who permitted two persons to pass at one time. The more disgusting and painful details of our imprisonment I must abstain from dwelling on. Our rooms were swept each morning, and such other personal services as were absolutely necessary were hurriedly performed by two filthy negro boys, under the supervision of the sergeant of the guard. We were permitted to correspond with our families and friends, all our letters undergoing the scrutiny of one of General Wool's officers. But we were not allowed to make any public statements, nor even to correct the falsehoods or slanders which were circulated about us in the newspapers. On one occasion a paragraph appeared in the Baltimore American, which, by way of justifying our arrest, alleged that the government had in its possession ample evidence of the fact that all who had been arrested had in some way violated the laws. An assertion so utterly false we naturally desired to contradict, and Messrs. Brown and Wallace and myself each wrote a brief card for publication in other journals, denying the truth of the American statement. These cards were not allowed to go to the newspapers to which we had addressed them. It apparently suited the purpose of the government to have us libeled as well as punished, and we, of course, were without redress. For ten days we lived, as I have described, in these darkened and dreary casements. General Wool never came near our quarters, nor did he ever, either directly or indirectly, extend to us the slightest courtesy. He knew as well as any one that we had been seized and were held by the government in utter violation of all law, and that he had no decent pretext for permitting himself to be made our custodian. He knew, therefore, that we were entitled to be treated with some consideration, but he ignored, alike, his obligations as a citizen and as a gentleman, and caused us to be subjected to indignities that it would have been needless to inflict on the convicted inmates of his own guard-house. After our return, we heard in several quarters that General Wool had repeatedly said he acted in the manner, strictly in accordance with his instructions from Washington. As implicit deference to officers of the government seems to be generally exacted in these days, the public may perhaps accept General Wool's explanation. For myself, I do not, and I am sure there are many who will refuse to credit the statement that the War Department found time at such a crisis to send special orders to Fortress Monroe, consigning us to the casements in question, and directing the closing of the shutters, and the counting of the knives and forks. It seems more reasonable to suppose that General Wool had some discretionary powers in regard to the treatment he was to accord to his prisoners. Soon after we reached Fortress Monroe, we began to consider the probabilities of our release, and the means by which we might obtain it. It was suggested that we should come to some understanding as to the course we ought to pursue, and then act together throughout. But this proposition was not for a moment entertained. Almost every one of us thought that each individual should act for himself, under his own sense of right. It was very soon evident, however, that we were all of one opinion. We regarded the outrage done us personally 
as one about which we could make no compromise. We thought the contemptuous violation of the laws of our state, and the rights of its people, required at our hands all the resistance we could offer. We saw that Mr. Lincoln desired, by arbitrary measures, to silence everything like opposition to his schemes, and we felt under an obligation to thwart his iniquitous project, by showing that the people of Maryland could not successfully be so dealt with. It seemed clear to us, therefore, that it was the duty of each of us, both as an individual and as a citizen, to continue to denounce and protest against Mr. Lincoln's proceedings, and to accept at his hands nothing save the unconditional discharge, to which we were entitled. Of this determination we notified our friends during the first few days of our imprisonment. End of section 2 Recording by Katie Riley September 2010